This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. The CDC saying schools can allow social distancing of three feet rather than six. Uh, currently, uh, being students in cl- uh, between students in classrooms, this is a big deal. It is, but only in classrooms when they're Correct. eating lunch, still six feet apart. Right. Okay, but we're making steps going forward. Right. But I have to say, I look at some of the headlines uh, across over in Europe. Also, if you take a look at some of the states uh, around the country, we're continuing to see cases pile up. So I feel like we just forward, backward, forward, backward. So let's get into it. Um, we love talking with him. Dr. Ian Lospader, back with us, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone. He is with us on the phone in New York City. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Happy Friday, Carol <sighs> and Tim. Hope you guys are Thank doing Thank you. Well. Has it been as an exhausting day, day, uh, week? See, I can't even speak, Ian. It has been just a crazy week. How's your week been? Totally. And <laughs> one of the topics that I'd like to put out there, perhaps over the next few weeks, is talking about all the stress around COVID, mm-hmm. whether it's home isolation, the emotional, physical, economic stresses, and uh, whether you're a healthcare provider, whether you're at home. And I think we're seeing this on a global level, whether it's volatile markets, whether it's uh, fighting about the royals or Republican or Democrat, right, left. I think we're seeing sort of an increase of global tension. And uh, I'd like to talk about some ways that we can address that and perhaps bridge conflict, identifying conflict and how to resolve it. First but of all, before that, how about the CDC guidelines? I know. Well, first of all, I love that you mentioned the Royals because it all like factors in, but we'll get to that. Well, wait, let's, okay, uh, where should we go? Let's talk CDC first because I know our audience is just trying to figure out, you know, how does my, my world start to open up or how do I do things? How do you see it? Are those important to you? Do you think that's a pretty significant step by the CDC? Yes, yes. A lot of guidelines, of course, are try to be based on scientific data, in other words, studies and so forth. And we do have studies that do show three feet is reasonable. But a lot of the decisions are often based on practical considerations. You know, we certainly know that if someone's infected and coughs without a mask or sneezes, those droplets may go out 10 or more feet. But we also know that school-aged kids really overall have a very good tolerance for COVID with very little serious illness, and that kids really need to be in school. You know, we have to have kids in school to maintain academic success. Social skills are very important that are lost when you're Mm -hmm. on home isolation. And parents also need the kids to be in school to reduce stress on the parents. So I think we're moving in an intelligent way. If teachers and school staff get vaccinated, there's really no excuse for not returning back to a normal school schedule. You know, with some prudence, three feet makes uh, the classroom very reasonable. Yeah. We're watching this play out in real time right now we're watching science happen in real time and the cdc change guidance in real time one term that often comes ahead of announcements from the cdc is the the term long awaited right we've been waiting for these things from the cdc it happened a couple weeks ago and we got new guidance on what vaccinated people can do what what do you still want to see from the cdc when it comes to guidance like what what needs to be clear to the american people 
Well, I think it's important to, for the time being, uh, even though I think the summer and spring will bring a totally different environment, I think for the time being, we do need to maintain masks. We do need to uh, have some social distance. But people who are vaccinated um, really should be able to get together in groups and feel safe. You know, whether you're on planes and need to show uh, kind of a COVID passport, I'm a big believer in that because we do know that these vaccines provide 95 percent uh, safety and and really we have not found many uh, people who've had the vaccine have any sort of serious illness so it certainly reduces serious illness and hospitalizations and I think we need to reward people who do the vaccine by saying look you have a little bit more freedom whether that's in restaurants or elsewhere so I think we're moving towards that and I think even though there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy the more people who get vaccinated, the more comfortable other people will feel to get those vaccines as well. Right. But a reminder that even if you get the vaccine, you still have to wear a mask, right? Because you can still be a carrier. I just, I'm thinking of the exchange between Dr. Fauci uh, and, and Senator, Rand Paul. Yeah, and Rand Paul. Right. And so, you know, that that is a uh, it's an interesting debate. We do find a few number of people who've been vaccinated will harbor some virus when you swab them. How infectious that is isn't really clear. In other words, the certainly the person who's been vaccinated isn't clinically ill. There may be some live virus in there. How easily that's transmitted is also unclear. So for the time being, it is very reasonable, even if you've been vaccinated to to wear a mask to decrease potential transmission. The reality is that is not, uh, it's not clinically significant. We're not seeing a lot of people who've been vaccinated really infecting other people. So I think Fauci raises a point, which is until we know better, until more people get vaccinated, let's all wear masks. I think it also is a good sort of social statement. But the reality is if you've been vaccinated, your odds of transmitting it to someone else are really quite low. Dr. Lesbader, in just 30 seconds, I want to bring in this kind of alarming stat that I saw. Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation found that barely half of frontline healthcare workers, uh, 52% said they had received at least their first vaccine dose uh, by the time they were surveyed. More than four in 10 have not been vaccinated. Uh, is that something you're seeing at NYU? Uh, I think it's a lot less at NYU, but you raise a key point. There's a lot of vaccine hesitancy uh, in the country, which we need to address. And even amongst healthcare workers, there's some vaccine hesitancy, much less among doctors. And it corresponds to some degree to educational right. level. We can talk more about it. I'm, you know, what? it has been a tough year. <sighs> yeah. You can say that again, right? Yeah, several times over. No, it's been really, it's been very stressful on so many different levels. And I think what I will say, silver lining, is I think we were all paying a lot more attention to mental wellness and mental health, and it's something we weren't doing before. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Lusbader, how a year of home isolation has created stress, not just, I think, you know, it obviously has created stress for, for people and their own interpersonal relationships, but you referred to this in more like a global scale. Take us uh, into it. A hundred... A hundred percent, Tim. Um, and I think what we're seeing on individual levels uh, with uh, patients, whether you see them in the office or whether uh, you're doing video visits, you know, we have to acknowledge the pandemic really triggered an array of issues, emotional, physical, economic Everyone knows of either an illness or a death of a loved one, isolation, unemployment, the stress of working at home with kids, being a caregiver, sometimes having to make difficult medical decisions. You know, and some studies show that over 35% of respondents 
have noted an increase in anxiety and depression, and even a higher number with some physical symptoms like headache, fatigue, and anxiety. And to me, it seems that this is really manifesting in a global uh, elevation of stress and anxiety, whether we see it at the Capitol riots or whether we see more polarization with uh, Democrats and Republicans. And I think what we need to try and uh, first do is acknowledge that conflict can exist, uh, whether it's a a couple at home uh, on isolation, and that uh, there are ways to deal with it. And I think we need to talk about uh, ways to do that. Certainly in school, we do not learn how to resolve conflicts. And there are specific skill sets that kids should learn and adults certainly should learn to try to bridge some of those conflicts. And I I think we don't even see it in the halls of Congress. Well, we certainly don't see it there. (laughs) Well, what would you suggest? Because I do really feel like people need some guidance on this. Absolutely. So the first thing, you know, we have to say is humans uh, by nature have some conflict. Uh, It it happens, whether it's uh, in the home or as a result of other stresses. And we really define conflict as, uh, or what some people define it as, as conflict exists when a person has a need of another and that need is not being met. So that need that you have of another person can agree to be met, or it can be negotiated, or there are various ways to respond to it. And you often see this. For example, there are five ways typically that, that are talked about competing, where people say, my way is right, your way is, is wrong. And it's really a power struggle, collaborating, where people try and work together. Compromising is one approach. Some people avoid it. They just won't negotiate or discuss. And accommodation, where often that's a power struggle, where people say, I can't get what I want, I'm going to accommodate. But we need to take an approach, schedule time, find comfortable space, try and diffuse the situation, really listen to the other person or the other party, validate their point of view, repeat the other's point of view, try and find some common ground, and then go from there. This is what negotiators try and do. So I think we need to think about, read about, uh, and just identify in ourselves that we may feel more stressed and work with whoever we're dealing with, whether it's at uh, the job or, or uh, at home or family members who have different political points of view or different points of view about masks, whatever it may be. Let's try and find ways to find common ground and think about those conflict resolution skills of, of listening, yeah. compromising, accommodating. It's a first, it's a great point as we head into the weekend. And so we're going to leave it on that note. That is just really good advice. Hey, Ian, thank you so much. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. I got to say, yeah, this one definitely hurt and still has many of us scratching our heads as to how it could actually happen. I mean, we all make mistakes at work, Carol. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and occasionally it's like, make mistakes. okay, not a big deal. This one costs Citigroup, though, half a billion dollars. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That affects the balance sheet. All right, so here with that story, that's in the current issue of the magazine. It's on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg, the magazine is. It's also among our most read stories. Let's head to... uh, Bloomberg News corporate finance reporter Davide Chilietso. He is in our New York City bureau. Davide, a uh, great story. And I have to say, Tim and I, <laughs> when we saw it, we're like, I'm still trying to understand exactly what happened at Citigroup. So lay it out for all of us because this is a big deal. 
Yes, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it is a big deal and it is a big mistake, but there is more than just human her error to this story. Um, essentially, Citi made a wire of uh, almost a billion dollars, it was $900 million um, that it was not supposed to make. Uh, that's the amount that left the bank. Then luckily, some of the people who received the money um, returned it. And so mm -hmm. they're out only for about half a billion right now. Um, but what's uh, interesting about this, it's a story about the technology that city uses for these kind of wires, which is outdated. It was not um, able to complete the, the precise transaction that they were trying to, um, to, to accomplish. And then it's a story about the people on the other side, funds that had been uh, up in arms against Citigroup and the company uh, whose loans Citigroup was administering, which is Revlon, um, and who did not want to return the money. So let's talk about the technology here. Can what, I just say, like, yeah, if, if by mistake Citigroup, like, all of a sudden wires me some money that maybe it wasn't supposed to, what are you I'm going gonna to have to give it back. So how come, like, yeah, I, this is what I don't understand. Yes, yeah, so the um, the funds that are refusing to give the money actually were owed money by Revlon. Revlon, the cosmetics giant, they had um, had uh, they were in a bit of trouble. They were trying to mm -hmm. refinance debt, roll over maturities, and there had been some tensions with some of their existing creditors. What Citi was supposed to do is was just to pay interest on the loan. They accidentally wired the entire principal amount. So the funds who got the money <laughs> the next mm. morning said, "Well." I Actually, you're in trouble, and we are supposed to receive this money at the end of the day. I'm just not going to give it back. And a judge in federal court in Manhattan sided with those funds. So what's the technology angle here? What is the tech that the city's and, yes. using, and, and how are they going to change it? Yes, the technology. I mean, if you look, one of the uh, screenshots was actually disclosed as part of the court proceedings. And you can see it looks like, you know, the, the early days of Windows, really. And the interface was not intuitive at all. And obviously, the people, there's three employees in question, two were contractors, and one is a senior manager for a city group in Delaware, who were tasked with completing this, this wire. Um, obviously, are supposed to know how to use it. And there is a manual that they're supposed to look at. But um, boy, looking at it, it, it just doesn't look intuitive at all. And they uh, essentially forgot to check two boxes. Uh, and that's all it took. So are they going to change that? Uh, do we know if they're going to start doing this differently? So this doesn't happen again? I mean, what safeguards are going to be put in place as a result of this huge blunder? Yeah, we don't know yet if um, they're going to change software or, 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 or you know, presumably they'll, they'll put some more safeguards in place. Um, this was already a process that required three people. It's what they described in court as a 6i process to authorize the transfers. Also, this transfer was not just your plain vanilla interest payment. So there were few different reasons why this became so problematic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's without question that um, this highlighted an issue that you hear about a, a lot across Wall Street of outdated technology. And uh, definitely, there, there, you could argue there is a need for, for a few upgrades there. Um, I still have questions about the transaction, but I want to stick with technology for a moment because I thought, you know, we've been hearing from a lot of big banks, Wall Street firms for years, for decades that, you know, one of their number one CapEx items is technology, right? And making sure systems are secure, that they work effectively. Was that not the case? If you, I, I don't know the specifics, but if you ask me, that does that system did not look like something that was put in place uh, fairly recently. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just kind of interesting, right? Because I do feel like the story we hear, and we know they're spending a lot on cybersecurity, but right. it, but maybe and, systems not so much. And I you would know. think that the cybersecurity 
would go hand in, in hand, would right? Would go hand in hand with the technology that they're using. But obviously, that's not the case, as Davide's as Davide's reporting found. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's equally important. There's a security and regulatory angle to this too. They had to do some quite some explaining in front of regulators about you know what happened and how how exactly uh, did they miss this so so as you write there the consequences are more than just losing hundreds of millions of dollars right this is this is about burning bridges and it's about reputational risk as well right it is about reputational risk for sure. Um, it, it has um, led to this controversy, which has had like deeper ramifications across across the, the markets. So because the funds did not return the money, now Citi is excluding those same firms from some, some of their debt deals, from some of their trading activity. Um, they're refusing to uh, help them arrange um, CLOs uh, and a few other things. So they're kind of burning bridges with, with, with those firms. Uh, the other dimension to this has to do with a, a trend that it's been a, a few years, I guess, in the making um, and that people complain about a lot in the credit markets, which is the deterioration of um, lending standards. And this is something that some of the creditor firms would blame on the banks or partly on the banks as uh, having, uh, you know, participated in this in this trend and um, we're seeing that uh, the consequences of that today this, that aspect of it I think is really interesting because you know these other companies or creditors they were worried about Revlon going into bankruptcy and I know there's that aspect of Revlon help uh, of Citigroup helping Revlon get a new credit line like there's a lot of pieces to this and kind of the relationships and you can see maybe why these uh, institutions were like we're not giving back the money because we just have we're uncomfortable with some stuff here yeah um, but it's just such a big amount of money that it's, it's a like big still shocking to me yeah, exactly. And it, and especially when it feels like it was just a case of like checking two, the wrong two, two check Two check boxes or lack thereof. <laughs> or lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, it's in the magazine. Uh, David Chiliutsu, thank you so much. Davide Chiliutsu, corporate uh, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. He's here in our bureau. Check it out in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So a story on our radar this Friday. Man, we actually talked about it yesterday. Yeah, it broke yesterday. And look, uh, yeah. some of the details had been reported, but I think this still came. The details came as a surprise to a lot of people watching the media industry and sports closely. Yeah, listen, the NFL signing a series of long-term deals, TV deals, valued at an estimated $105 billion, I think it was. Uh, yes, billion. That's a lot of money. Uh, including a historic contract giving Amazon exclusive rights to broadcasting Thursday night games. It is a first for a streaming company. So let's get into it with... And great to be talking again with Tuna Amobi. Uh, Tuna Amobi. He's media industry analyst at CFRA Research. He is with us on the phone in New Jersey. Hey, Tuna, so great to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? I'm fine, Carol. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's been a while. So listen, this is a blockbuster story. How do you see it? You know, I think Disney has to be one of the uh, clear winners of this uh, this deal that we just um, you know saw. It's as blockbuster as it gets when you talk about media rights deals. So Disney has been able now to lock in uh, these rights for a fairly uh, long period of time and now getting much more expansive rights. 
um, you know, across its uh, linear uh, and traditional platforms. Uh, ABC is now back in business in terms of Super Bowl rotation. And of all of the uh, networks, I think Disney has the most uh, manageable uh, terms of uh, increase from the last deal. Uh, we calculate approximately 30% increase from the last uh, cycle, whereas the other networks almost double their rights fees. So I think Disney clearly one of the uh, winners here. But Disney's not the biggest winner, right? I mean, isn't Amazon a big winner with this? Because Disney still has some of those legacy media assets that have come under pressure in recent years, even though Disney has done very well over the last year. You know, it has so it has so many different business segments. It, it still does have ESPN. And as more and more people cut the cord and move away from traditional cable and satellite pay TV, that's an issue. Right. Well, there's no question that this deal is going to accelerate the uh, card cutting and now consumers being able to uh, pick and choose their uh, sports uh, packages across the various uh, streaming offerings. Um, you know, you mentioned Amazon. I would also say Amazon has taken a giant leap in making itself uh, much more compelling by locking in the exclusive streaming rights. Uh, for a Thursday night uh, package. Uh, but there's not going to be uh, just one winner here. And remember, Amazon is paying about a billion dollars per year now, you know, almost 10 times what they were paying in the last, in the last deal. Granted, they're able to secure much more expensive rights. But when you think about you know, the potential winners here, you have to keep in mind that those are going to be companies that are, are able to mitigate the decline in the uh, traditional bundle, which you alluded to, which is an ongoing phenomenon, and use the uh, streaming business to begin to offset that. I think that's where we see Disney doing a pretty good job. You've seen some of the numbers from ESPN Plus, right. uh, and, and that has been gaining some traction of late. And my understanding is right, and I think you said this, you know, Disney's paying, what, the lowest increase from the previous deal to the new one, and right, and they also got... Uh, as you said, um, you know, some of the other rights. And Monday Night Football, I mean, that is a powerful night to have. Indeed, uh, Carol, that, that has always been uh, one of the highest rated, um, you know, telecasts in the entire television dial. Right. And remember, football is really the gift that keeps on giving. And whilst <laughs> the ratings have been down, uh, you know, in a, with a pandemic, and I mean, there's no question in the minds of the networks that, um, really, there's no better option out there in terms of aggregating mass audiences than uh, than the NFL. It's as, as big as it gets, and that's why you see them kind of uh, falling over themselves, really, to lock in these rights. Tuna, you know, what's interesting, and you talk about what Amazon's paying, you know, it depends what they ultimately get for it, because they don't have commercials like traditional broadcast, right? And traditional broadcast uses football games to also get people to watch some of their other primetime programming, right? That translates into more ad dollars. Like that's kind of the traditional formula. And I kind of understand that. What does, I mean, does Netflix ultimately have to have a net ad of so many users for them acquiring NFL rights to make sense? Well, Amazon, I think, has uh, this sweet spot, really, is the growth in the prime membership, okay. um, you know, based on by locking in these rights uh, globally. Um, I think they're able to now make a much more compelling value proposition for uh, growth in, uh, in that subscription revenue, which much of which drops to the bottom line. And remember, also, Amazon has been uh, growing very fast its digital advertising you know, revenues. Um, this is going to be another area where I think you're going to see uh, an acceleration. Um, so there is a number of uh, very positive touch points for Amazon, which can help to justify this uh, price tag that they're paying.
I wonder what this means for traditional streaming. I mean, Netflix certainly invented a category when it pivoted from DVDs to streaming. Amazon has done a really good job in the last year. Disney Plus has exceeded pretty much everyone's, even their own expectations in growth. But but streaming up till now has really been thought of as this place where you go for on demand for content that you can watch it at any time, not necessarily for, for live sports or even live content for the most part, for the most part, Tuna. So I'm wondering, what can Amazon do that traditional TV can't because it's streaming? I know they're talking about this X-ray idea and, and putting in some of those features that you get with Prime Video, but, but what can Amazon really do to enhance a traditional broadcast? Well, I think Amazon has, you know, I think they're a pretty unique platform in some respects, right? I think uh, not only are they able to offer this globally, remember, the rights they got are global rights, um, and that's that's what, number one. Number two, I think there's a number of uh, initiatives that comes with these rights uh, in terms of additional uh, programming, uh, NFL, virtual channels, things of that nature. Uh, so I think if you're a prime video subscriber, the idea that you can all of a sudden get all of these uh, games, the whole package, as opposed to limited uh, number of games they had in the past, that's an additional uh, you know, value proposition. And for the network, for the league, that's the way that they've uh, been able to really expand their audience. Uh, you know, Amazon, obviously, one of the uh, leaders out there. And to your point, I think all of these streaming um, you know, platforms are looking for ways to differentiate themselves and having a live sports, marquee sports offering on your streaming platform is sure one way that you can do that. And that's why you see the other uh, competitors like Paramount Plus and Peacock. Everyone is trying to yeah. you know, make sure that's a must-have within their uh, offerings. Tuna, Earlier today on, on Quick Take, I interviewed Rich Greenfield, a fellow media analyst. He's at Lightshed Partners. He and his colleagues wrote a piece this morning saying, Mark it down, March 18th, 2021, is the day the multi-channel TV bundle died. Cue is, dramatic music. I know. And, you know, Rich has been, to be fair, Rich has been saying this for year, right, years, right? Like he has this hashtag on Twitter, hashtag good luck bundle. Right. Is, the, is this the, the, the nail in the coffin of the traditional multi-channel bundle? Well, you know, this is a phenomenon that's been going on um, in drips and drops for, for years. And what we saw is that the pandemic has accelerated this secular, um, you know, trend where, you know, obviously people are uh, looking for cheaper alternatives. Uh, and to the extent that they can replicate the traditional bundle uh, through online, um, you know, streaming platforms, uh, that, that there is a tendency to do that. And that's a secular trend that we would argue that in some respects the blockbuster deal has actually um, uh, accelerated that phenomenon. So there, there is some uh, there is some credibility in, in that thesis, uh, but it remains to be seen really um, you know how 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 the uh, how the whole thing will will unfold. But most of the media companies actually have recognized that fact. They have accepted that that reality, and that's why you see most of them looking to these alternate platforms to uh, to kind of uh, support a traditional uh, business. At, at a certain point, though, you start to pay more per month for all of these streaming services than you do for a traditional cable package. This is something Carol and I were talking about at the break, kind of going through all the different services. I'm calling it the streaming for. bundle now. But there's nowhere to buy that streaming bundle yet, yeah. at least. I mean, how does this how does that evolve? Because at a certain point between, you know, Hulu, Netflix, uh, HBO Max, Paramount Plus, uh, you know, the list continues to go on. You're you're going to start paying a lot. 
Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it comes down to this idea of a synthetic bundle. Mm. And, uh, you know, our research so shows that the average consumer now has about three of these um, kind of uh, streaming platforms. And remember, it's not a zero-sum game to the extent that yeah. all of these, uh, you know, streaming subscribers are necessarily dropping their uh, pay TV uh, subscriptions. There is a fair amount of pay TV, uh, you know, uh, subscribers still holding on to some of these. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it's kind of not a zero sum game. So that means that, um, you know, while that trend persists, um, I think it's going to be some some overlaps. And I, and I, I the way to think about it is that there are going to be some winners and losers in in various uh, aspects of of the streaming wars. And everyone is going to pick and choose. Uh, you know what what they like, and, and to the extent that the programming uh, gets continued to be chopped up and carved up, whether it's live, on demand, sports, entertainment, that is consistent with with uh, you know that secular trend that we've been uh, calling for some time. Tuna, one of the reasons I love talking with you, and I know Tim does too, is like you've just seen the evolution of the media world. I, I was kidding when we came into the studio. We were talking about some different things and bringing, going back to the days of John Malone. You know, um, we have evolved. It has evolved in a big way, the media world. How do you see it in terms of the more interesting trends that you think are going to be the stories, the companies to watch for years to come? Indeed, Carol. It's it's been like uh, you know a long time <laughs> since we started talking about this, and it's it's like an eternity now, right? I mean, <laughs> it, the industry itself is barely, you know, recognizable. Um, you know, and who knows five years from now? I think you know the, the trends are holding down uh, the audience fragmentation, decline in in uh, television uh, ratings, acceleration in in uh, online viewing, and then also this uh, uh, broadband only households. These are households just subscribing to. Um, uh, to, to the internet uh, subscription without any wireline video. And, and this is being all driven by demographic changes, the millennials, etc. All of those things are, uh, are, are forcing almost like a perfect storm that will continue to radically reshape uh, you know, the landscape. And add to that, these streaming wars, which you know, I think is getting a lot of investors excited. You see a lot of media stocks now trading near all-time high. And a lot, some of these names were left for dead just even years ago. Uh, so who's to say what's going to happen you know, three to five years? from now, which, uh, you know, this space looks like an eternity. One area that I wonder about is that wireline connection that people have to the home. It is getting increasingly expensive to have that broadband only connection. I've certainly noticed anecdotally my price increased significantly just in the two and a half years that, that I've had this connection in this home. I, I wonder what type of competition actually emerges for that, because so often and for so many years, cable was the natural monopoly because it was so expensive to, to lay fiber and to lay these lines. So you really don't have that much choice for broadband Internet. Is 5G or any of the emerging technologies, is that an actual potential competitor for wireland broadband? That's a great question. And that's really uh, the holy grail here in terms of, you know, what, you know, the, the, um, what, what could radically uh, the, the kind of if you want to think about it as the next um, you know, potential catalyst that could, uh, you know, spur demand and, and potentially, um, you know, reduce costs. Um, but I think you also touched on a, another issue about the competition in, in, in the broadband. And, I, you know, the, it, we just had a change of administration, and it kind of comes down to, you know, this issue of net neutrality, which is never going to go away. And who knows what the Biden administration is going to do in terms of potentially putting it back on the docket, um, you know, mm -hmm. that, would re that was repealed by 
uh, the other administration. If he comes back, then he raises the whole issue of you know the, right. the uh, service implications of broadband and what the internet service providers are doing to extend that the right. uh, relationship with the content companies. So all kinds of moving parts there. Uh, good stuff. Hey, Tuna, thank you so much. Be well. Have a great weekend, and hopefully we can talk soon. Tuna Moby, media industry analyst over at CFRA Research, on the phone in New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Let's bring in Lamar Villery. He is portfolio manager at the New Orleans-based Villery Funds. They've got some $2 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone in New Orleans. By the way, the Villery Balance Fund up nearly 56% in the past 12 months, beating just about all of its peers in the category. That's according to our data. Lamar, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Well, so tell me um, a little bit about the environment, the investment environment right now. You guys, your fund, your balance fund has done really well. I know it's been, though, maybe a tougher last couple of years. What's the environment look like right now, and what's your thinking about a balanced portfolio? What does it need to look like? Sure. So, you know, as, as we've talked about in the past, Carol, we, uh, we're, we're generally speaking, we're, we're allowed to invest in anything we want as far as stocks go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we really have tended to lean heavily on smaller cap stocks. And um, as, your, as your listeners just heard you talking about and have heard for a while now, small caps have had really an incredible run, um, which kind of puts us in, a, in an interesting position. As, as you mentioned, we've had a great year. Um, following some tough years for small caps, but but things are looking great. That, of course, makes us nervous. So um, <laughs> yeah. we we look at it and say, well, we're really glad to have had this great performance. Uh, but we've actually been really kind of looking at uh, some a little bit larger caps, and you know, luckily our, our investors let us go where we see value in, in sort of the, some of the mid and larger cap stocks of where we've been uh, we've been looking as of late. What's what's catching your eye in that category? Sure. So um, one that we've we've kind of held for a while, um, but really uh, has has pulled back here is, is progressive. So everybody knows progressive because they uh, run about fifty commercials every time you watch a football game. <laughs> it's so um, true. Yeah, yeah, and and but but you know, it, which seems like wow, how can they spend all this money on advertising and, and still make money? And, and the answer is simple because they're competing with. Uh, you know the legacy uh, insurers who all have agents everywhere, and that's way more expensive than hiring than paying you know, Flo to tell some funny jokes in a commercial. Um, <laughs> we all know who so, that is. Yeah, exactly. So, um, in in general, you look at you look at Progressive, and and it, it had a nice run with the basic thesis uh, being that there's fewer miles driven. The people were paying the same amount for their car insurance, uh, but were working from home, so it was it had an, a, a pretty steep rise. And as, as pulled back a little bit, we think it's still uh, a great opportunity because number one, um, uh, they're they're growing in their uh, commercial space. So you know whether it's Ubers or, or other delivery, um, that that's an area that's growing with them. And number two, yeah, we do think miles are going to go back up. Miles driven will go back up, but but not as much. You know wherever the the pendulum ultimately uh, winds up as far as people working from home. I don't think we're heading directly back to full office buildings filled with, uh, you know, packed garages. So I do think Progressive has a uh, has wait. Not not ever, or not anytime soon. Not anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I think you're, you're definitely seeing people out and about, and people are coming into the office. But uh, I don't think it's going to swing completely back to where it was, maybe ever, but at least not for not for a pretty good while. Um. So it's interesting, too, um, 
you know, you mentioned progressive. So it's funny because I talk about the insurance industry. I mean, there are aspects of the insurance industry, obviously, that you like. There's parts of it, though, that I wonder are just going to continue to be tested, especially because of climate change and other things that, you know, spells trouble for the insurance industry. How do you think about that? Well, as, as luck would have it, we've actually uh, recently invested in a, in a smaller cap uh, property and casualty insurer called Palomar. And uh, they've got a heavy book on uh, a lot of earthquake insurance, but, but also storms and other things. And uh, we struggled with your point a lot. Uh, yeah. you know, Palomar has pulled back recently because of the ice storms and before that because of the seemingly countless named storms in the Gulf. Um, so they, they, you know, how do you get comfortable with that? Well, we spent a lot of time with the management team and really understood that um, the, you know, they have very limited risk. They, they offset most of their risk to, re, to the reinsurers. So um, we think they've got essentially a better mousetrap in how they're writing these policies. And, and so there are some opportunities there. But broadly speaking, you know, you're right. It is a concern um, that you're going to have more events that cause problems. So down 21% this year, Lamar. So have you been buying into the selling thinking because it's a value play here or or what? That's exactly right. We think okay. it's a value play and, and we it's not and we don't think it's a value trap. We think it's a, an inexpensive stock with some pretty bright long-term prospects. So one like that, uh, we think, is, is one that we, we look forward to growing. It'll be, it, it's not going to be a smooth path. It won't look like a bond. It's going to look like a, a okay. small-cap stock. It will have highs and lows as the weather uh, issues pop up here and there. But we think the risk is, uh, is not what, what the market seems to think. Ticker is PLMR for those who are listening, uh, Palomar Holdings. Hey, Lamar, i got to ask about Visa because it's one of the biggest holdings that you, that you have yep. in the fund. Um, down significantly, at least earlier today, um, on this news that the company faces this U.S. probe over its uh, debit card routing practices, are you seeing this as a big risk to the company? We don't think it's a huge risk. Uh, you know, we actually originally bought into the company when there was a, a similar uh, fear when the Durbin Amendment was coming out, and, and we thought that created an interesting opportunity. So for us, uh, we don't think uh, the regulate you know, there will be regulation of debit cards. Uh, we don't think there. Uh, the company's acting unfairly, and, and you know we think uh, if, if there's much more of a pullback, we'll probably add to our position. Yeah, Visa down uh, about 5.4% as we speak. Right. So talk to us about another name that you like is uh, Steris, ticker is S-T-E. Um, tell us about this one, Contamination sure. Control. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, this was a funny one, and you know we still think it's interesting, but this one really went down during the pandemic, which we thought was crazy because they yeah. – they're in healthcare settings, and they're focused on contamination and infection uh, prevention control. Uh, so what would seem to us to be a no-brainer um, positive, uh, you know, obviously people are trying to stay away from hospitals, but uh, they're, they're going to go in. Now, the long-term outlook for this industry is, is great. You know, one in 20 patients that are admitted to a hospital are going to get an infection from being in the hospital. Oh. Uh, this costs the healthcare system in the U.S. alone, $10 billion a year. So, uh, you know, we think this is a, a great place to be uh, to be sitting. You know, it's not an aggressive growth stock. This isn't one that we're looking to double. Uh, but, you know, you, we do think it's got steady growth. 
80% of the revenues are recurring. And oh, by the way, while you sit there and wait, you're earning almost a 1% dividend yield. So we think this mm-hmm. is a great kind of core holding. Tim's I, never going to go to a hospital I know. Now. That's just like such a startling <laughs> statistic. I do wonder, though. I do wonder if we are going to see any fundamental changes in the wake mm-hmm. of the coronavirus crisis in terms of sanitization. I know that buildings that people are going to are certainly sanitizing in a lot different ways right now in hospitals as well. Don't you think that number can potentially change? I mean, hopefully it does. That's very alarming and says a lot about U.S. healthcare. Yeah, it's it's absolutely one you would hope would change, but uh, it's it's certainly as we said, it's a big expense for them. So uh, we, I guess, as as investors, we hope and believe that Darius will be a part of that change. So that, that we think you know, spending is going to go their way, and so this is a good good hold. Yeah, it makes sense. Hey, Roper Technologies, one more. Uh, Ticker's ROP. It's down about eight percent so far this year. It's kind of an industrial play, right? But it's also software. Yeah, it's actually not as industrial as people think. It, okay. it, it's, its legacy business was mostly industrial, but really the company has transitioned over the last uh, 10 years or so in a much more technology-based. They're, they're really focused. They buy businesses. So it's, a, it's really a portfolio of companies uh, with a fairly small management team, uh, but they, they focus on buying things that have great free cash flows, recurring revenues, and good margins. So they, they, they're buying very high-quality businesses. And, you know, this is one where it's difficult to buy Roper because it always is, uh, trades at a premium and, and investors generally feel okay about that because it is a great business and it's got a solid management team. Uh, you don't get these pullbacks that often. Um, you know, it has these little hiccups every once in a while that right. enable you to buy it. It's never going to look glaringly cheap, <laughs> yeah. uh, but anytime it doesn't look too expensive, and, and right now is one of those times that this is a, a decent opportunity to get involved. All right. Well, good to chat, talk names with you. Lamar, thanks so much. Have a good weekend. Lamar Villery, Portfolio Manager at Villery Funds, on the phone in New Orleans. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.